Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and uh, with me today I've got two guests. Uh, first is Scott Harrower. He's the Associate Professor of Theology, History, and Ethics at Ridley College in Australia. He's also an Anglican priest and now a thrice guest on the podcast, taking the lead, yeah. I think, for the number of All appearances right. on the show. We'll have to have a jacket made like the uh, five-time SNL host. Oh, you know? man. The but you did jacket. have a head start. You had a head start because you were actually our first guest ever. I'm pretty yes, sure right when we started the podcast. It's like voting. You vote early and often, mate. That's right. That's exactly it. And joining him is also uh, Preston Hill, who's the professor of integrative theology at Richmond Graduate University, where he works at the Institute of Trauma and Recovery and also a, mem- a minister in the Anglican Church in North America as well. Um, Preston, do you serve a parish as well? Yes. Um uh, the Mission Chattanooga. Oh, so the Mission Chattanooga. Cluster okay. Mission Churches. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I wish that Miles was here because he's actually from Chattanooga. And I believe that may have been his first experience in Anglicanism was at um, was at the Mission. It's a it's a unique crowd, especially in this in this diocese here. It's very, um, yeah, very missional. Yes, very, yeah. very, very. That's great. Um, do they have multiple sort of locations or is it one? They've got one, uh, I would say the main, the mothership, I guess, is the Mission Chattanooga. And then they have Mission Cleveland and surrounding areas, Mission Red Bank. And gotcha. so the three of them make up an abbey. And so Chris Sorensen is the abbot. Very so, cool. Yeah, ancient faith in today's world, it's it's fun. Love it. Love it. That's awesome. Well, we're here to talk about a book that you two wrote as well uh, with, I think, a third uh, author, Joshua Cockane. Um called The Dawn of Sunday, The Trinity and Trauma Safe Churches. Now, before we jump into the book, Scott, I got to ask you how you're feeling with the Melbourne Football Club sitting atop the ladder of the yeah, AFL. Yeah, it's pretty good, pretty good, yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's such a fast and funny game, Aussie rules, isn't it? It is. Everyone's running around, the ball shapes in weird ways, and, and it means it bounces in any direction. So I think it's like the best analogy for parish ministry there is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because you just never know what's going to happen. It is a great sport. I'm sure the Venn diagram of people who listen to this podcast and people who watch Australian rules football is very small. But um, if you're interested (laughs) in sports, it is a good uh, it is a good thing to to watch. It's very, very fun. Yeah. Now, how did both of you kind of come to be interested in uh, trauma studies? Scott? Uh, well, I um, I grew up in South America in the um, in the middle of a civil war and the war with England over the Falklands. Lots of people disappeared, and so I kind of saw lots of like terrible things. And when I w- moved back to Australia, I saw the same in our hospitals when I worked there as a nurse. And um, then as a minister, you know, I just got to know the fact that. People were suffering in horrendous ways and even though I knew that God was near us, I really struggled for quite a while to understand um, the dynamics of trauma, which which I knew from being a nurse, but how God was related to that. So that was quite a struggle for me, um, but that was the that was the background to, to me coming into it. Yeah. Hmm. I, similar, uh, similar to Scott in many ways, I... Um... I mean, the truth is that it's autobiographical for me. I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and I joined a support group in my undergrad with a college professor. 
And, you know, it's, I realized early on that admitting to surviving such intimate forms of abuse as a male is, it cuts directly against the prevailing, uh, the prevailing norms of masculinity, especially in North America. <laughs> so I, it became very valuable to me to find people who were willing to be honest about violence and the effects it has on people and the fragility of, of being human that um, is not often encouraged in the modern world to be honest about. So I, I found in trauma studies and trauma theory language for my, my own life experience and um, the way trauma is different from suffering. And like for me, still living today with um, various residual chronic forms of post-traumatic stress, um, it's been really important to engage that honestly. And it's always for that reason been, uh, even if more, more and more come to explicit articulation, always implicitly been a focus for me of um, asking big questions about what's God really like? Uh, what's Jesus really mean for the life of the world? So that's how I came into it. And also just interest in theology and psychology and um, trauma keeps finding its way into my life and world. And the more autobiographical I am, the more that makes sense, I think. So then this book, um, how did it kind of come to be, given the three of you um, working together and collaborating? Well, Preston was organizing a conference, and um, as part of that, I think you had a reading group on God of All Comfort. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I, I got a small grant when I was in St. Andrews doing my PhD to put on a church conference grant. And we actually partnered with the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and the Allender Center. They would do a lot with sexual abuse and trauma and Christian faith. And so we had them come out and we did a big just kind of church conference with psychologists, um, theologians, philosophers talking about Christ and trauma and theology east of Eden. And during that time, we had a reading group from some of those people for Scott's book, God of All Comfort. And uh, in that group was me and Josh Cocaine and a bunch of other interested parties. And uh, we eventually got in touch with this, this alleged Scott Herrer, this in, infamous Scott Herrer. And we said, hey, we love your book. Can we write some reviews? And Scott said, yes, here's copies of it. And we both wrote reviews. And Josh in particular said in his review, if I can summarize it, Scott, you said so much good stuff. And I think you need to say more about X, Y, and Z. And then Scott said back to Josh, well, do you want to help me write a book saying that <laughs> further X, Y, and Z? So as it turns out, if you critique or offer constructive criticism to a fellow laborer, it can lead to um, it can lead to co-authorship, which was the case for us. Yeah. Am I getting and that story right, Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, basically, you know, the, your reviews were like, yep, good, but more, please. And I said, well, why don't you help me do the more? And when we got together, I think, um, Preston, you, you noticed that we had a lot of shared intuitions theologically in terms of God the Trinity and then in terms of trauma and recovery. And I think that's been key to the three of us being a great team. We had just a lot of shared intuitions. And it took us a while to articulate them together, but because we trust each other, 
um, it, it was great. And, you know, we'd spent hours just talking, talking and talking, talking things through. It was unreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that. Love it. Fitting that there are three of you on a book on the Trinity as well, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, Two terms that get used a lot in this book and Scott in your other book, um, God of All Comfort, which we'll link our first interview with you on that um, in the show notes for this. But two terms that get used a lot are, are horror and trauma. Could we just define those for people who may not be as familiar with the the literature? I might hand over to um, Preston here because he's the um, the guy that's currently most plugged into the science uh, with horror. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, I was thinking leading up to this, you know, I think horror became um, became uh, more vernacular in theological scholarship with Marilyn McCord Adams, and this idea of horrors being something that is uh, on the surface of it at first blush is life ruinous to someone. It's something that occurs that has no positive instrumental value to the horror participant. Um, so these are horrendous evils, things that you can't say, um, you wouldn't be able to look the survivor in the face and say, just hold on tight, this is all working out for good. It's something you would look them in the face and say, no, this is this is evil and there is no justification for it. That's the horror is the, the initial event. Um, I, in some ways, I think synonymous with a traumatic event, but a trauma response or trauma um, the thing that's different about trauma from horror is it refers to not just that initial shock or initial event, but also the ways in which that uh, the aftermath or the effects persist in a unique way that is not like other suffering. It's this kind of psychological suffering that you don't remember it as if it were in the past. It keeps occurring to you in your mental life again and again. It keeps intrusively you keep intrusively reliving the horror because it was so overwhelming. And so we like to make that distinction between a horror and the trauma response. Um, other, another aspect we talk about is that horrors are not always so overt. Um, sometimes part of their insidiousness is their commonplace nature, is their mundaneness. So you can have the the trickle effect of something like uh, vicarious trauma or secondary traumatic stress from, uh, I mean, even according to the DSM, a pastor could be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder just from hearing stories over the course of 20 years. So the slow drip feed of commonplace horrors or you know, microaggressive forms of racism in culture. I mean, there's all sorts of ways it could manifest, but it's helpful for us making that distinction. That is helpful. Thank you. Um, the sort of main question that you all are answering in the book is how can our churches become open to the Trinity such that they're trauma safe environments for everyone? Um, so I guess maybe to frame that conversation, it might be helpful to, to isolate some ways that the church in recent times has not been open to the Trinity um, and as a result, not been trauma safe. Yeah, I mean, I think the discussion around trauma and caring for survivors, caring for repentant perpetrators, um, caring for the caregivers um, of survivors um, has been quite thin theologically. 
And it's also been complicated by the fact that a lot of our churches are in survival mode. So uh, ministers try to focus on people that they think are quote unquote leadership material and that won't take up too much of their time. And, you know, I understand some of those, those um, impulses. Um, and so unfortunately, um, there's been a real fear of engaging. Adding to that complicating factor is that you've got about 25 years of um, seminary training, which basically said to pastors, hey, you're not equipped to do much. So just pop a psychologist business card in their hand and and off you go and you know basically outsource uh recovery um for christians away from the church but um you know preston josh and myself wanted to say no wait a minute ministering together with the good shepherd and under the good shepherd means that for christian survivors caregivers and repentant um perpetrators the Good Shepherd actually wants to embrace and heal, and the church is the channel for that. So we, we need to we need to work with each other and the Good Shepherd. To kind of follow up on that, I, I'm I'm curious, kind of your advice for the average uh, pastor or priest who maybe has a seminary training but that hasn't emphasized some of these things, and obviously their work won't completely displace the work of a therapist or a, or a psychologist, but I agree with you that it shouldn't just totally be ceded to the the therapist or the psychologist. So, what what, what would a good balance kind of look like um, between between the two? Well, you know, I I think um, uh, it's this is it's funny you're bringing this up. This is something so on my plate right now in my heart with being operating in the role of. Uh, with further education from my institution here, operating as a pastoral therapist out of my office here. So balancing that, um, it does feel like a balancing act. I think that, I think my biggest piece of advice to pastors would be, and I'm saying this as a theology professor on faculty of a KCREP school of counseling, uh, I would say it's not as technical or as hard as you think it is. Um, the truth is that the counseling profession uh, especially in America, is the most professionalized uh, discipline I've ever seen. But really underneath all that professionalization is um, a lot of basic intuitive skills about what it means to help someone to be in a helping relationship. And at the heart of all of them is this paradoxical notion that trying to fix things makes it worse and just being with someone and not trying to fix it helps. And so I would say the most important thing you can do is listen, offer a compassionate witness. Just listen. Don't don't try to offer solutions. Don't try to fix. Um, the best thing you can do is just listen to someone. And uh, you'll be surprised how many people will actually revolt against that because they'd like you to try to avoid actually helping them. Um, but oftentimes the form of help that really helps is just, you know, can we witness? Can we just witness non-judgmentally, just openly witness someone's story and and just offer it kindness? Something that's Very become helpful. important for us has been recognizing the value of Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount for the person who is the listener. 
if we're a listener who is who is humble, who is meek, who who mourns over the evil in the world, who is pure-hearted, who hungers for righteousness, and is willing to suffer for that which is right, you're being Christ-like in that situation. You're, you're showing them Christ's characteristics, so they they see the good shepherd being with them through your Christ-likeness. Yeah. So it really it draws on on a on a life of being with Jesus, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Preston? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the life of Jesus being one of, I mean, if there is any divine revelation, it is that that Jesus reveals to us about the heart of God. It's that compassion is generative. Mm. Suffering alongside copacio is not. I mean, I evil would like us to believe that compassion is impotent. And that mm. is the greatest diabolical lie. Compassion produces all kinds of life, uh, but it requires a patience, a stillness, and a non-frantic, non-anxious presence. Yeah, it seems. I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know if there's maybe more technical language, but but in being with someone rather than trying to fix the problem, you're allowing them kind of space to be. And you're being with them, but you're not. You're, they're not a project to work on. You're not sort of dehumanizing them as a as a as a thing to fix. Um, but you're just you're letting them be themselves and freeing freeing up that space for them. And that seems like uh, seems like what our Lord does to a number of people, um, which ends up doing good for them. And so, so, so many people that we will come across will be suffering horrors such as. Um, domestic violence in the form of intimate partner control. So their finances are being controlled, their friendships are being controlled, contact with their family is being controlled, everything's being controlled. So you there as the empathetic Christ-like witness, you're not trying to control them. You're, you're, you're a breath of fresh air. Yeah. yeah. Love it. So for people who are nursing wounds after experiencing horrors you, you all give us sort of four dimensions that are required to re-establish a sense of safety what are those dimensions and and how do they enable human flourishing well yeah um as uh lewis herman says uh you know you need a sense of safety to begin the journey of recovery and basil van der kolk says that that sense of safety needs to start in the body. So when we are with people, it needs to be an absolutely non-threatening uh, situation in which the, the person does feel at ease. Um, but we make the point that feeling at ease isn't, isn't the goal, um, but it's rather setting um, a sense of safety so that the person can understand that they're loved that they're able to maintain boundaries, that nothing will be imposed on them that's inappropriate, there'll be no inappropriate requests. And hopefully as a consequence of being together safely and showing Christ's love to them um, through the spirit, um, over time, regaining that sense of being loved, the ability to hold up boundaries will strengthen that person's sense of self and also allow them to join into a story where God can uh, include and redeem them in the larger picture of what he's doing in the world. So 
that's where those community connections that that we want to build together really have to begin by offering a sense of safe belonging to people i would agree i would say um that one of the greatest advances in the convergence uh, of psychological science and psychoanalytic theory the helping professions and certainly theology and philosophy of human flourishing is this notion that fundamental to fundamentals of human flourishing if there is a base level is this aspect of integration what it means to flourish as a human is to have all the components of identity uh, operative together in a way that yields this coherent sense of self <laughs> and uh, all the psychi i mean even the dsm is organized this way there's two poles of human psychopathology on the one hand is anxiety hyper arousal on the other side is depression hypo arousal and so i often think of it as um a river with two banks and on the one side is chaos hyper arousal borderline on the other side is rigidity um hypo arousal overly structured um subdued and measured and in between that is human flourishing when you have just the right amount you're within the window of tolerance and so I mean, fundamental to human flourishing is attached. This comes from attachment theory, of course, and neuroscience, but this all happens pre-verbally. This all mm. happens with babies. This is not something we linguistically um, appropriate. This is something we appropriate in our literal senses. Like you're not safe when someone says you're safe to them. You're, you feel safe when they, you feel safe. They smell mm. safe. They sound safe the intonation of their voice, like this is embodied. So you have to recover bodily safety. You have to feel that you're loved, feel that you're attuned to, feel that mm -hmm. there's not chaos of any lack, but you also have to have boundaries where there is some rigidity. So it's not rigidity, but it's boundaries and it's not chaos, it's attunement. And in between that, the end result is this big picture sense of what, as Scott said, Judith Herman and others say, I think that the world is fundamentally uh, a relatively safe and good place. <laughs> and that's what it looks like when humans flourish is they have faith in the world. Wow. That's right. I love that image. That's great. Thank you. Um, so the first section of the book kind of, you all talk about these, um, horror and trauma and then um, what it kind of looks like to to enable flourishing um but the second part of the book you you begin um by rooting uh what you're doing in the trinity um and i know there are probably i think there's three chapters for each person of the trinity um so i don't think we can probably exhaust everything but but kind of how does rooting this discussion in the trinity help us better understand um kind of what's going on when with recovery well, I think uh, very important for us is that the Trinity is a God who is fundamentally and always in loving, holy, interpersonal relationships. So God will never change. He will always be holy and loving and he will always be relational in himself. And that tells us quite a few things. For example, the fact that at the very foundation and before all things, you have perfect holy relating means that the highest value 
in life, that which is most important is holy love and relating between persons. And also tells us that um, God wants to bring about holy and loving relations with people made in his image. And horrors occur within relations. So what we're trying to do in, in the whole project is call people back to holy and loving relationships that will heal where the damage has been done in relations by an absence of love and an absence of holiness. So for us, beginning with the loving holiness of God and his relationality is really key for understanding his relation to us and also the goal towards which he is taking us in the journey of recovery and caring. You all mention on, I think it's page 129, that in light of the... Um, in light of our Trinitarian theology, the church has a kind of double witness when they encounter people who are recovering from trauma. What What is that double witness of the church? The double witness, it's we, another extremely helpful image. It's a, I would say a governing metaphor of the book manifest in the title, the dawn of Sunday. This aspect of a double witness also frames the series to which this book belongs, new studies in trauma and theology or theology and trauma. And the idea of the double witness is basically uh, just this. Um, we, for some reason, we have a tendency to dichotomize and present things in more rigid black and white ways, all or nothing, either or, the duck rabbit approach to things. You know, the image of the duck, is it a duck or a rabbit? It's one or the yeah. other, not both. Yeah. But I think we wanna say, uh, you know, yes, in order to, give due honor to survivors, you need to bear witness to their the way that suffering persists and trauma remains in their life and not try to cover it over with a smooth bandage, not try to cover it over with a triumphalist narrative that elides their suffering or is not honest about it. Yes, but it's certainly also not true that survivors, all they want is for you to talk about how real their pain is. Survivors also want to know, I mean, honestly, they want to know, is there any way I can get some relief and, and recovery and flourishing? And so it feels like this tense middle space because you can't do right by survivors without acknowledging the persistence of their suffering, but you can't do right by them without acknowledging the hope of recovery. So a double witness is where, where we say, we have to enlarge our own perspective as the witnessing church, the listener, the accompaniment, we have to expand our internal world to be able to hold the complexity of the both and. That we witness to the losses and the laments, we also witness to the possibility of hope and healing. And the image for us there is this dawn of Sunday, this holy Saturday, we've got one foot in the persistence of death. This is not the crucifixion, this is the aftermath. This is the persistence, the silence of holy Saturday. But we also have our face toward the dawn. Maybe the sun hasn't even risen yet. Maybe it's just light breaking over the horizon. Not even sure the light's going to break, but we're not going to close our hearts off to it. We're going to be open to the fact. We're going to be bold enough and vulnerable enough to be open to the fact that there might be healing. We're not going to triumphalistically prophesy it, but we're going to be open to it while we're being honest about the losses. I think that's the double witness. Mm. What what does that look like maybe in 
specific relational context with someone who's recovering from trauma? Because obviously, like we said earlier, the goal isn't to, to sort of fix them, but it certainly seems like um, like someone in recovery may oscillate between those two poles at different times. So would that kind of just look like a gentle nudge towards the, the, what they're uh, what they're missing or, or is it just kind of letting them letting them figure it out and just walking with them through it? I'd be interested to hear what Scott thinks. For my for my part, I think um, I don't think it involves a nudge. Um, I do think it involves um, sometimes doing, sometimes offering a witness on behalf of people when even they themselves would like to reduce it to make it easier to digest. I know this is true in my own story. A lot of times, I've been infuriated by the most helpful people in my journey, the people who have been the best witnesses who I look back on with the greatest appreciation and fondness at the, in the moment of their, their um, good care, they were infuriating because they didn't let me off the hook of the double witness when I would have liked to have reduced it to only a story of pain or only a story of healing. Um, they were more honest. And so I think just being a witness who you don't have to nudge them, but you just have to be uh, willing to just be honest with them about and call them back and forth. Cause a lot of times it's helping that the person in recovery expand their own internal world to say, you know, they might talk about someone with rosy colored glasses. Then you say, so you're saying they never disappointed you so-and-so. And you know, someone might get really mad at you when you say that what you're inviting them to is to be more honest or on the other hand, this person is pure evil. They just harmed me. And you're like, you never experienced delight from them. You never experienced a sense of joy in their presence. And that's that tense, painful middle space that we all know is the real space of life. And it's the space where healing happens. You can't have it. Uh, I mean, here's the, here's the principle. You cannot heal what you have not named. And you have to be able to be honest about something before you can make change. Mm. I guess uh, for me, it was really my nursing background that taught me that unless you're working in palliative care where it's end of life care or the emergency department where people are going from pretty flat to sitting up in a couple of hours, mostly in nursing what you're doing is you are with the patient, you're observing them, you're not the doctor, you're in an in-between role. And you're with the, the patient. And a big part of nursing is being a good observer. It is the, I worked in wound care for years. You, you know, you, you, you take the bandage off. What's going on? Okay, we've got some inflammation around the outside. But, you know, we can see, see some skin growing, growing upwards. Um, and, and I can say, yeah, there's some good here. There's some, some not so good there that, that probably needs to be done away with. And we need some more. Uh, creams and that kind of stuff, maybe some debridement. But you're basically there as a good observer and you have to notice both the good and the bad in recovery such that the wound heals. And in trauma studies, the analogy of the wound, the wound that remains, is one of the big ideas. So I think we need to be good observers like nurses who are caring for those whom we see day in, day out. And medium-term relationships are really important here. And you're just observing that which is lamentable, a loss, and you're also observing life, 
light and love where you see it. So with all this in mind, and this has all been very helpful, I think, um, what are some practical suggestions for building trauma-safe churches? I know, again, you give us four more criteria of kind of what it looks like um, to be a trauma-safe church, but but how can we take some of these conversations and apply it um, in our in our parish lives or, or churches? Mm, yeah, I, mean, I, I think some of the, yeah, please go. No, ahead, no, go please. ahead, go ahead, Scott, go ahead. I mean, I think a lot of what we've said about uh, the way that you come across to people and developing a sense of safety is really important. And I mean, this this goes down to little things like when when someone wants to talk after church, um, how do we treat them? What kind of spaces do we invite them into for talking? Are, are they dingy dark offices with lots of locked doors that's not on you know um so like creating safe spaces making sure that they're comfortable uh, that they understand what what it might be like to talk together um they're just all the small things that show a trauma awareness on behalf of the church um it's like we've all got kids safety uh policies and procedures in our churches these days you know and that's fair enough and it's right. I think uh, what we do in the book is we outline a number of principles that give us guidance um, to think about how we might be with someone as we begin and to be involved in the process of healing. So do no harm is absolutely vital for us in this book. And it's the principle that whatever happens in this conversation, I am committed to caring for and being with this person in such a way that I'm not going to harm them. I'm not going to take risks. I'm not going to, like, have a guess. I'm not going to, you know, push. I'm going to do no harm here. I'm, I'm here to listen, to help. And, and I mean, it sounds really simple, but, but that was a key principle for Thomas Aquinas in his own ministry practice. Do no harm. It has a long, long pedigree. And that's one of the principles in this book is thinking through how we do no harm in our pastoral practice. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a tougher balance than I would think. Uh, I mean, it sounds easy enough, but it's it can be hard when you're in a parish context. You've got a lot of factors to consider. And I know, I mean, just in my own experience, there's there are a number of different roles. You know, someone wants to come talk and um, they might have a complaint about the liturgy or about a sermon that you preached. And so you want to sort of defend it or teach them or whatever. But I think part of the art of being in pastoral ministry is learning to to listen below the what, what's really going on under the surface or under the hood, you know, and diagnose that. And that's that's hard because you have to kind of set aside the teacher mode or the the defender mode, apologist mode, you know, and 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 really yeah really just open up to them and that, that that can be very hard yeah i mean we and i agree with that it's it's i think one of the one of the paralyzing features of pastoral ministry one of the reasons um you know it's not like pastors are going out saying i i i want to have a non-trauma safe church today that's not what people are doing but 
what is it then that accidentally paralyzes pastors into these situations where they're backed into a corner where they, it seems like you wake up one day and you've ended up with a church that's not trauma safe and there's some news breaking or something. And we're trying to diagnose a little bit of that here. And I think one of it is what you've named this aspect of pastors are overworked, uh, underpaid and just burdened with so much you're trying to juggle so many plates it's hard to pause and prioritize one thing over all the other things but as you know scott said we are making the case in the book that um a church that is not committed to doing no harm above all else um can't be a trauma safe church you just can't be a trauma safe church if you have any kind of tolerance for um traumatization in your midst, you know, a place that a place that either actively has trauma or could actively have trauma um, in some kind of some kind of even implicitly sanctioned way can't be trauma safe. And the way you tell is, I mean, our age is so image driven over word driven. We prioritize the image over the word. And so many churches are committed to their public image. And often that goes under the name of, we don't want to ruin our public witness. But I mean, Jesus, I like to say all the time, that's really good worldly wisdom. It's just not what Jesus said. He says very clearly, um, do you, Father, I pray that they may be one so that the world may believe and the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And then he says in First John, how can God's love reside in you if you see a brother or sister in need and do not help? So we've got, Jesus telling us not only will standing up for justice and the care of the vulnerable not ruin your public witness, it'll be the best witness to the world. And I'm just thinking, man, what if I saw a church that stopped trying to cover itself and instead just aired its dirty laundry in public and was just honest? You know, I wonder, I wonder how many Christians deconstructing their faith would start to trust that church more than others. So I think doing no harm is an important first principle, but then we lay out the other four, you know, first of all, do no harm. And then the final three are um, listen to survivors with a compassionate witness and um, empower survivors for restoration. And then uh, uh, engage and bless the bodies. So we got to come back to the body. We, We have to have, survivors don't have the luxury of not living in their bodies. They have been forced to. And when you have a church that's willing to engage the body, it speaks the language of trauma instantly. Liturgy can be very helpful here. We talk a lot about that. Um, mm-hmm. But going back to listening to survivors, um, we listen and we believe and we take it seriously until we find out otherwise. So this isn't saying every accusation is believed and no questions asked. But what we are saying is until we find out otherwise, we operate as if it were true for the sake of safety. And with the issue of empowering restoration, the third principle, um, it's a really simple, basic, intuitive one where we just say, uh, no one wants to be patronized. Um, There are tons of studies that show uh, when you approach someone saying, I'm the expert, you're the wounded, it's a big turnoff. But if you come to someone and say, I actually think I trust you with your own story. How can I join you in your journey of recovery? How can we together mutually negotiate? That level of empowerment 
is the opposite of trauma. All trauma is rooted in an experience of powerlessness. Mm. Um, that's what traumatizes. That's what makes a horror horrendous is you take away someone's agency and they feel powerless and therefore have a trauma response. So empowerment always has to be the guiding principle of recovery. So those are some of the, I think, intuitions we're trying to get at. And some of the ways that could practically play out is, you know, we prioritize non-maleficence. We prioritize survivor agency. We prioritize taking survivors at their word. And we don't look at them with suspicion. We don't reinforce that stigmatized identity. And we are not shy about engaging the body. You know, we've, we've really? fundamentally believed that, that we're united together in Christ and that Christ has empathy for everyone in a general way because of the incarnation and then in a specific way because he indwells in us. And moreover, Christ can share what he knows about someone's suffering. He can sh share with another person to care for that survivor in ways that, that go beyond what we know. And he, he brings the Good Samaritan into someone's life and brings someone into the Good Samaritan's life. And we've got to trust that God's at work in this. And, you know, um, I just ran a couple of courses based on the book for um, diocesan regions here in Melbourne. And people were like, oh, yeah, but where, where do I find someone, you know, a survivor that I can care for? And I said, mate, just trust the Good Samaritan principle and know that statistically a third of your church is experiencing some kind of trauma right now and god will bring them right in front of you when you see people before you on sunday or a midweek service on wednesday there they are trust that the spirits at work get engaged and trust that the spirits at work in you and in them and join in you know with what god's doing in their lives and in your life and together in the body it's great that we believe in god the trinity it, there's so much potential for his love and his light and, and his love rather than if he weren't God the Trinity. But because he is God the Trinity, we're united in Christ through the Spirit such that we might know the powerful love of the holy and loving Father. It's great. Yeah, that, that is great. Now, this book is in a series, uh, New Studies in Theology and Trauma. There is there one other book that's come out in the series previously, or is this the first one? There is one book that's that's come out first uh, in this one. It has to do with um, preaching and trauma. Mm, okay, okay. And then what are kind of the plans for the series? What, what more might we expect from it? Well, Preston actually has a few uh, aces up his sleeve. Some super exciting stuff. We've got the first one that came out, Unspeakable, uh, trauma-informed preaching. Ours, Dawn of Sunday, the Trinity and Trauma Safe Church. We've got um, Deborah Van Dusen-Huntinger, who has been a vocal leader in the world of pastoral care, pastoral theology, previously at Princeton, recently retired, um, but has written extensively on trauma. She's contributing a volume that uh, I'm editing on her behalf that I'm so excited for called Trauma-Informed Christian Counseling, Theology and Psychology and Dialogue. Mm -hmm. And we've got a couple other people that uh, we're reviewing right now that are just, it seems like the, this nexus of topics resonates with the current interests of so many, especially emerging 
voices in the world of theology and um, you know the contemporary world. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure um, as more of those come out, we'll we'd be very interested in in talking with uh, with you all and the authors and everything about that. And and um, thank you both for your work on these uh, on these topics. It's really important. And Preston, thank you especially for your your witness on this. Mm. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you, Scott. Oh no, thanks. It's been it's been great to chat and, and Wesley, I just love the way that your podcast is so plugged into the church and what's going on and thinking about where God can offer hope, mm-hmm. you know, in contexts where there is lament. Uh, I love it. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we appreciate that. And we um as priests ourselves, we we want to make sure we talk to the experts who know what they're doing and can can shepherd us in the right direction so that we can better shepherd our uh, shepherd our flocks. So as we uh, as we come to a close of each episode, we always talk about sort of one thing that we're into lately. It can be a book, a movie, a life experience, um, you know, any anything really. Um, so uh, let's start with uh, with Scott. Scott, what are you into these days? I'm into tabletop uh, fantasy wargaming, actually. <laughs> so um, yeah, I play. Um, a game called Malifaux and one called Infinity, which is sci-fi. And I love it. We play uh, weekend tournaments. And what I like about it is you meet new people, uh, you have fun, and uh, you get to play with your uh, man dollies, your little soldiers on the table. And um, it's just a bit of a laugh and it's just very relaxing. Um, I do it with my son, Dante, and uh, it's a great excuse to travel all over the place. So that's something I'm doing lately. I really enjoy it. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Preston, what are you into these days? I nothing is well as fantastical as Scott. I I smile every time I hear about Scott's latest in that. I to be honest, um I'm into our brand new brand new little baby girl who was born, our second born who came on Trinity Sunday, not this past Sunday, two Sundays ago. And She's our little squishy potato baby, and she's keeping us up. So I I did not get much sleep last night. Only recently have I gotten a solid six hours, and I tell you the day after, uh, I never loved Jesus more, and I never believed in the gospel of his death and resurrection more. So we're trying to survive, and we're loving our little our little newborn. Congratulations. Yeah, that's great, man. Hard, hard to top that one. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think fantasy uh, fantasy games, they feel similar somehow. Maybe it's the sleeplessness. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I think because I do with my son, it's 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 nice like that. And Yeah, no. Nah, well, we both love our family, so that's sweet. Lots yeah. of caffeine associated with both, I'm sure. Yes. For me, it's it's much more boring than both of you. Uh, for me, it's baseball. Um, oh yeah, go on. In America, you know, sports have kind of—I mean, basketball, hockey, football—they're all sort of ended. Um, so all we have during the summer is baseball. And uh, you know, I live right outside of Baltimore, and uh, okay. the Orioles are pretty bad, but they're not as bad as they uh, as they have been in years past. So uh, it's nice to be able to go up to a game every so often. And, um, and it's really the only thing on. So I've sort of adopted baseball lately. 
Um, but it is the great American pastime, and there is something about baseball that is really beautiful. Um, so that's that's kind of what I've been into. But it, it, it's a little boring, admittedly, but that's okay. Not at all, mate. I think baseball has a charm that's really unrivaled. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, but you've got the whole like rookies, the farm system, oh, yeah. double A, double A, single A, all that, and all these hard luck stories. I mean, it's like country music. You know, people are finally make the, the majors after 18 years of pitching left-handed and then had to donate a kneecap so they could pitch right-handed and finally make it as a closer. And, I mean, the stories in baseball are unreal. That is true. Lots of good stories. Yeah. Well, um, Scott, so as uh, as we end today, if, if listeners want to catch up with your work, um, where how can they do that? Um, they could they could send me an email at s.harrower at ridley.edu.au. So that's my Ridley College email. And, yeah, I'm happy to go backwards and forwards uh, with listeners of this podcast in particular. So Ridley College, just sign my email and I'm happy to, to be in touch with you. Great. Thank you. And Preston, what about you? Yeah, same. Please feel free. Uh, phill at richmont.edu. And uh, I also recently, uh, in order to fulfill the conditions of a grant I just got, I had to start a personal website uh, posting like work and stuff. So, and the username Preston Hill was not available. So I had Mm. to use drprestonhill.com. Wow. So it sounds so, so arrogant, but there you go. That's how you can find connect drprestonhill.com. Well, we'll uh, we'll put that website in the uh, in the show yeah. notes for today if people want to want to catch up with you. Absolutely, man. With a baseball analogy, that's big league. Look at Wes and I still scrambling in the pineapple league, like playing for the <laughs> you know, Las yeah, Vegas Rose or whatever. You so embarrassed um, Doctor Justin Hill. I just have to. I need people to know. You know, they people need to know. They have to <laughs> call me that. Yeah. <laughs> unreal no that's cool mate very smooth good on you (laughs) well thanks to both of you again for for joining us this morning it's really been a a wonderful conversation i'm really really glad that we uh were able to connect and and talk through these issues uh really really important for us um, to have a good understanding of how these things work and and how we can as churches and parishes um kind of work work on these things collectively uh, listeners, if you uh, if you like what we're doing, uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts. Be sure to share us with your friends. You can email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com, and you can join our Patreon, join the Communion of Patreon Saints um, for $5 a month. Um, to end, I'm just going to read the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.